I'm reading a verse from the 11th canto, the second chapter, 42nd text, the Shrimad Bhagavatam by Shrimad Bhakti Paishan Bhavo Virakir Anyatra Jaisha Teka Eka Kala Pajamanasya Itasmatasya Tushti Pushtikshu Apayo Ugasam. Devotion, direct experience of the Supreme Lord and detachment from other things. These three occur simultaneously for one who has taken shelter of the Supreme Personality of Godhead in the same way that pleasure, nourishment, and relief from hunger come simultaneously and increasingly with each fight for a person engaged in eating. Once again, devotion, direct experience of the Supreme Lord, and detachment from other things, these three occur simultaneously for one who has taken shelter of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In the same way that pleasure, nourishment, and relief from hunger come simultaneously and increasingly with each bite for a person engaging in Prabhupada's purport. Sri Jiva Goswami has explained this analogy as follows. Bhakti or devotion may be compared to tushti, satisfaction, because they both take the form of pleasure. Parishana Bhava, experience of the Supreme Lord, and pushti, nourishment, are analogous because both sustain one's life. Finally, eruption, passion, and shudapaya, cessation of hunger, may be compared because both free one from further hankering so that one may experience shanti or peace. The person who is eating not only becomes uninterested in other activities, but increasingly becomes interested in the food itself according to his satisfaction. On the other hand, According to Srila Jiva Goswami, although one is experiencing the blissful personality of Godhead Krishna, on the other hand, according to Srila Jiva Goswami, although one who is experiencing the blissful personality of Godhead Krishna becomes uninterested in anything other than Krishna, his attachment to Krishna increases at every moment. Therefore, it is to be understood that the transcendental beauty and qualities of the Supreme Lord are not material. Since one never becomes satiated by relishing the bliss of the Supreme Lord, the word virakti is very significant in this verse. Virakti means detachment, whereas tyaga means renunciation. According to Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakura, the word renunciation can be used in a situation in which one considers giving up an enjoyable object. But by considering everything to be potential paraphernalia in the service of Lord Krishna, as described in the previous verse, one need not give thought to renunciation, for one uses everything in the proper way in the service of the Lord. Yukta Bhairagya Uchitya I'm just going to read the previous verse because Prabhupada refers to it. It's quite an important and significant one. It says that a devotee should not see anything as being separate from the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Krishna, ether, fire, air, water, earth, the sun, and other luminaries, all living beings, the directions, trees, and other plants, the rivers, and the oceans, 
Whatever a devotee experiences, he should consider to be an expansion of Krishna, thus seeing everything that exists within creation as the body of the Supreme Lord Hari. The devotee should offer his sincere respects to the entire expansion of the Lord's body. The very pleasant analogy of a good meal is given in this verse. A hungry man, busily consuming a sumptuous plate of food, is not interested in anything else happening around him. In fact, he considers any other topic or activity a disturbance to his concentration on a delicious meal. Similarly, as one advances in Krishna consciousness, one considers anything unrelated to the devotional service of Krishna as an obnoxious disturbance. Such concentrated love of God has been described in the second canto of the Bhagavatam by the words That's the, the third chapter of the second canto, of tenth verse. One should not make an artificial show of renouncing the material world. Rather, one should systematically train the mind to see everything as an expansion of the opulence of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Just as a hungry materialistic man, while seeing sumptuous food, immediately desires to put it in his mouth, an advanced devotee of Krishna, upon seeing the material object, immediately becomes eager to use it for the pleasure of Krishna. Without the spontaneous hunger to engage everything in the service of Krishna, and to dive deeper and deeper into the ocean of love of Krishna, so-called realization of God, or loose talk about so-called religious life is irrelevant to the actual experience of entering the kingdom of God. According to Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, the path of Bhakti Yoga is so joyful and practical that even in the stage of sadhana bhakti, in which one follows rules and regulations without an advanced understanding, one can perceive the ultimate result. As stated by Sri Rupa Goswami in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, one two one eight seven. Ika yasya arir dasye karmana manasagira nikilas papi avastasu jivan muktasu uchite. As soon as one surrenders to the Supreme Lord Krishna, prapadya manasa, giving up all other activities, viraktir anyatara cha, one is immediately to be considered a liberated soul, jivan mukta. The Supreme Lord is so merciful that when a living entity understands that the personality of Krishna is the source of everything and surrenders to the Lord, Krishna, Krishna personally takes charge of him and reveals to him within his heart that he is under the Lord's protection. Thus devotion, direct experience of the Supreme Personality of Godhead and detachment from other objects become manifest even in the beginning stage of Bhakti Yoga, since Bhakti Yoga begins at the point of liberation. Other processes have as their final goal salvation or liberation. But according to Bhagavad Gita 1866, Sarvadharvan Rikyaja, Mam Ekam Sharanam Raja, Aham Tvam Sarvabhavibhyo Mokshayichyami Ma Shuchaha. If one surrenders to Krishna, one is immediately liberated and thus begins his career as a transcendental devotee with complete confidence in the Lord's protection.
One thing that Vidyananda Maharaj and his associates have emphasized in the purport of this verse is the principle of Yukta Vairagya Uchite. It's considered very natural when we walk and breathe. Very natural, very normal. The purport of this, this verse is that Chanting Hare Krishna and associating with devotees and engaging in devotional service in Bhakti Yoga should be as natural as walking and breathing. Not that it requires some extraneous excursion to go and visit the temple, but this is, this is our very life breath, as natural and as fundamental as walking and breathing. Once I took, uh, Prabhupada in the car to visit the United States Immigration Service, and we encountered an officer, a lady, who was very polite to us, and near the end of the conversation, she remarked that, she asked the Prabhupada, isn't it very difficult to engage in Krishna consciousness day after day? And he said, it's the same thing as getting dressed. You wouldn't come to work without any clothes on. It's just as normal and natural as getting dressed. And with that statement, she understood a little bit better that Krishna consciousness is a normal and natural thing. That, in fact, it's, we know that it's the most normal and most natural thing that we can engage in. Like breathing and like walking, it's just, those are things we do without thinking. Walking and breathing. So Krishna consciousness is that natural. It is said, Nitya Siddhartha Krishna Prema Sajjaka Bhunai Shravana Nishidhichite Kariyavada. It's a famous verse in the Chaitanya Chaitamrita written by Krishnadas Kaviraj, which says that it's normal and natural for every living being to be Krishna conscious. It's not something that is gained from some external source, but rather it's part of the nature. It's almost as if we're wired, as they say, wired for God. There's something within the soul, within the heart of every living being, that is naturally Krishna consciousness. So the process of chanting is not some artificial imposition on the mind, as Prabhupada said, but rather it's a way of awakening something that's already there. It's finding what's already there and awakening. One of the things that Prabhupada said was that there are devotees in every street corner, we simply have to find them. Everyone wants to be a servant. Everyone is a servant. Everyone wants to serve ultimately the highest master, Krishna. But there are so many obstacles along the way. The senses are dragging us in different directions. We want to hear, see, taste, feel, think different things. But the thing that we want more than anything, which has to be uncovered, it has to be discovered by chanting, by associating with the bodhis, is that we're naturally Krishna conscious, that we want to serve the Supreme Lord. It's a natural thing, it's not an unusual thing. Although the surroundings, the, the various accoutrements that surround the bodies and their way of life, it may seem unnatural, but actually it's completely natural. 
This is the principle of Yukta Bhairagya, that maybe it was among the many gifts that Prabhupada brought, maybe it was the most important gift. It wasn't something that he brought personally, but it was a teaching that Rupa Goswami gave in his Rupakirasamrita Sindhu, which has said in this verse and, and the previous one, that whatever we do, whatever we happen to be good at doing, or whatever we like to do, that can be done for Krishna. That's the thing that, that Prabhupada taught Western people, that you didn't have to go away and meditate in a hidden cave or on a, the, the side of a cliff in a little cave, or by some sacred pond or in a cave, or in some remote region part of the Himalayas. But you could you could be on your back fixing an automobile, you could be repairing a typewriter or a computer, and still you could be doing it for Krishna. This is the, the great gift of Rupa Goswami that Prabhupada bought. You you could be driving your car. You could be you could be just taking a walk with your family, you could be throwing things in the furnace. And you could be Krishna conscious. Whatever you would like to do, whatever you're doing, you could be staring at the fire. And it could be reminding you of Krishna, if you want to be Krishna conscious. It is this rare gift that Prabhupada brought to the world and made it possible for people who have no, no idea of any, anything about the Himalayas or, or being a, a recluse or being a sadhu. They could just do it instantly by Practicing whatever they were good at doing, whatever they liked to do, and doing it for Krishna. This was the rare gift. But it's not something new. It's something that Rupa Goswami taught. And it's something that is even said in, in this old publication, is the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna that the real sannyasi is not one that likes no fire and does no work, that they engage in acts of devotion. So these acts of devotion are what constitutes real sannyasi. Arjuna was, he had the rather thankless task of having to be a warrior. But because he was acting under the direct instruction of Krishna, that became Bhakti Yoga. So this is not something new. And it was, it was underscored, it was emphasized by Rupa Goswami, Yukta Bhairagya Uchite, that if we think that we're going to renounce the world, he said that's incomplete renunciation, that's Haikava Dharma, it's not the real thing. But if we see everything that's, that if we see that everything is actually connected with Krishna, as we read in the previous verse, and that everything has proper utility in Krishna's service, that is real renunciation. That is real sannyasa. And it was a saying of Bhaktisattva Saraswati that there were two classes of devotees. He said that there's the Dandavadavis and there's the hearing devotees. The Dandavadavis were the people who had mastered various rituals and regulations. They might put a few pennies or pice in the honey box and offer their Dandavas. But they really had no devotion in their hearts. Whereas a person who would enjoy hearing the Srimad Bhagavatam recite it or read it constantly, that is the real, that is the, the real devotee or the hearing devotee, the one who is getting some pleasure out of Krishna consciousness. So this verse is very significant because it also emphasizes how normal and natural Christian consciousness is. Just like eating. What happens when we eat? We lose our hunger, we feel nourishment, and we feel pleasure. Everybody feels the same way when they eat. Feels good, yes. Everyone likes to eat nice tasting things. We feel stronger. We might be very tired, maybe we haven't eaten for a long time, but we feel uh, ready to, to go out and conquer the world. And thirdly, we feel... Uh, not really interested in other things. Why 
we're just we couldn't be bothered with, with something no matter how attractive it might ordinarily or otherwise appear to us. So in chanting the, the Mahamantra, a similar thing happens. We, we feel pleasure, but we should feel some happiness. It's not just that we like dancing and singing, but we, the, the actual sound of Hare Krishna is, is very pleasing to us. We feel spiritually stronger than, than we feel we, we've been sort of boosted spiritually. We, we may be a step closer to the spiritual sky. We feel stronger. And thirdly, we lose our attraction for material things. Just like when we're eating, we lose our attraction for other, other, other senses. So, as, as we become more and more Christian conscious, we lose our attraction for material allurements. They're always telling us, go here, go there, do this, do that. That's a sign also of being stronger. So that happens. And when these things happen to us, when we're chanting, then we're, we're advancing along the path of Christian consciousness. Krishna is nudging us, you might say, or pushing us closer and closer to Krishna, to Him. It said that we take one step towards Krishna, He takes ten steps towards us. So if we chant, and do it regularly, and read, then Krishna is coming closer and closer. I heard Prabhupada lecturing in 1974 in Vrindavan, and he was saying how important it was to read. These were Vrindavanites, people who grew up in the Krishna culture, people who sing songs about Krishna throughout their whole life. And yet he was saying in the Radhadamara temple, read as much as you can. Absorb the philosophy. Of course, there are those who don't like to read, and for them, then chanting may be the, the highest ecstasy. Of course, it's the highest ecstasy for everyone. But Prabhupada has given us so many teachings and written so many books, translated so many uh, Puranas and Bhagavad Gita, Shrutis and Smritis, that uh, it, it, it helps us to remember what, this, what these teachings are about and, and to reinforce and, and to uh, emphasize our knowledge, to, to give us a deeper and deeper insight into Krishna consciousness. It's mentioned here in, in the first word that one, let's see if I can find the exact. Thus, oh. devotion, direct experience of the personality of Godhead, and detachment from other objects become manifest even in the beginning stage of bhakti yoga, since bhakti yoga begins at the point of liberation. Some people think that liberation is the be all and end all of spiritual life, but suddenly there will be a flash of white lightning, and then it will be liberated, and that's the end of it. And some prefer to have a spiritual name instead of a spiritual life. Or, in other words, initiation is the end of everything. But actually, it's the beginning. The, the very word initiation means the start of something. So as it, as Friedana Marsh and his associates right here, devotion, direct experience, the personality got an attachment from other objects becomes manifest, become manifest even in the beginning stage of bhakti yoga. Since bhakti yoga begins to point of liberation. So there are different concepts of liberation. But Madhavacharya said real liberation the deepest meaning of liberation is to attain our constitutional position at the lowest feet of the Supreme Lord. That is real liberation, the best liberation. That it's the beginning of something. It's the first step in a long, long journey. Bhakti Yoga is not an end, it's the beginning. And even in the spiritual world, it's stated in the Chaitanya Chaitanya that the love between Radha and Krishna is increases millions of times every second. That's inconceivable. Now anything can be millions of times every second. But it happens. It's happening in the spiritual world as we speak. 
It's not, and so it's not an end, and it's a never-ending upward spiral, we might say, spiritual life. It's not something that you you have, you've got, you've arrived. It's, it's not static, but it's very dynamic. Even in the, in the highest realm of, of spiritual life, our our love for Godhead is increasing, as is mentioned there, millions of times every second. Inconceivable, but it, it happens. We have no experience of this in the material world, so therefore it becomes inconceivable to us. It becomes a mystery. It's something that it's, it's really hard to believe, but literally millions of times every second it happens. Why, why does it happen? It happens because we make an effort. This is the price of what pays for Christian consciousness. Loyal is the word that means eagerness or greediness that one wants this. And this is the price one pays for Christian consciousness. It can't be purchased with any amount of money. It is only by our very sincere and eager desire to have Krishna that, that, that he makes himself available. This is how it happens. There is Rupa Goswami and Krishna that were the teachers that were emphasizing how normal and how natural it is. Just like eating, like breathing, like, like walking. Krishna consciousness is a very normal and natural thing. But because we live in the material world where we sit with so many obstacles, even when we want to walk and breathe, sometimes we can't breathe. Shankar Acharya said that a human being is a, is a creature of half a breath. By that event that death is imminent at any, at any time, may happen. We'll breathe in or we won't breathe out. We'll breathe out or we won't breathe in. So he said that human being is a creature of half a breath. Meaning that we shouldn't take it for granted that because we're alive, it is going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. And when Prabhupada was on his deathbed, he, he had the Presence of mind to stay. Don't think this isn't going to happen to you. As he looked around at everyone, don't think this is going to happen to you. And someone else wants to ask him, if Krishna consciousness is so benevolent, why is the death rate in India so high? And Prabhupada said it's the same everywhere. It's a thousand percent. Very good answer. A thousand percent. Everyone's going to have to experience this at some point. So the idea of Yukta Vairagya is that since we will not be able to remain in these bodies forever, unless something is possible. Maybe we, we, within this century we would be walking robots, people would replace uh, hips, replace hearts, replace lungs, replace ears, everything but the brain. But even if that's replaced, what does it mean? Motor function. Sure, we could be robots by the year 2099. But is that really life? And although it's never been done, there are people who write books that say it can be done. Geneticists, they study that they say that by the next, within the next 96 years or so, that uh, people will be immortal. But we'll be machines. Whereas a uh, transcendentalist knows that there's another dimension of life, another place to go, the body is, is not the real self, and that there's another existence that's very happy and very blissful in which something that we're unaware of that there's an increasingly upward spiral going on of deepening devotion. That takes place. That's the spiritual world. It was Prabhupada who taught us, but as the teachings of Krishna and others, that there is another world and that's a world of happiness. We're, we're living in a world of duality in which there are highs and lows, Every, every pleasure has its concomitant displeasure. Every, every drunken session has a hangover. 
addiction of drugs has a downside to it. Everything, everything that's pleasurable has a downside. But in the spiritual world, there's nothing like that. It's a different kind of world in which everything is happy. And there is, there's no duality. So the material world sometimes called the world duality. Pain and pleasure, hot and cold, good and bad. But the spiritual world is all good, all warm, all happiness. Doesn't require anything external. Krishna consciousness is the awakening, the awakening of that internal aspect of love of God that's within everybody. And it doesn't really matter what tradition it comes in. Sometimes people are bhakti yogas through Christianity, through Islam, or through something else. And a friend of mine was recently here from, from the Soviet, the former Soviet Union. And there's a great debate going on right now, a big battle between the Russian Orthodox Church and the devotees. It's, it's become very high profile because the devotees were granted a tract of land, about one hectare, uh, in the very almost geographic center, very near uh, the, the St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow, near the geographic center in Moscow. And the, the chief minister of India was even involved in dedicating it. But the Russian Orthodox Church has fought back and said that because this place, this location is very central, it's on Leningradsky prospect, and that because in approximately 1893 or 1894 there was a stampede because there was a coronation of the last Tsar, Nicholas II, that it's a kind of a very sacred place. Although there's a gambling that's you know, right exactly on the spot where the stampede took place. And several people lost their lives in the stampede. It was, it was something where free things were being given out. And, and just like happens in some football games, people become overly excited. And it wasn't really anybody's fault, but they, there was a stampede and many people, over a thousand people died. So there's been a real pitched battle between the uh, Russian Orthodox Church who say this, this is sacred ground because people died here, even though, as I said, on the very spot there's a gambling casino located. And uh, a new, um, untraditional religion, Christian consciousness. So this is a very interesting concept, to say that Christian consciousness is untraditional. What does this mean? This means that they have entered into the bodily concept of life while wearing the robes of monks and priests, and beards and black coats and so on. The Russian Orthodox Church is part of the Eastern Church. But uh, it, it denies the innate Christian consciousness of every person. Because according to Russian Orthodox tradition, only Buddhists, Jews, and Russian Orthodox uh, and, uh, and Mohammedans are traditional religions. And if you're not a so-called traditional religion, quote-unquote traditional, that, is, that comes from India, it's, it's, it's just not traditional. And if it's not traditional, it has no right to occupy a traditional location. So this is what the debate is all about. It's interesting because it, it hinges on what we're talking about here, that Christian consciousness is some kind of a foreign thing or it comes from another part of the world. It's not part of our culture. It's not part of my mentality. It's not part of, of the tradition that's common to people. And if it's not common to people, if, they, if, they don't, if it's not familiar to them, then we can't accept it. So the point being made here is that it is common to everyone. And it is acceptable. It is traditional. What's more traditional about being human than to develop love of God? And just to be Christian, Prima, Sajik, that, That's our natural, normal, organic, whatever you want to call it, position. That's our original position. And the most original position we have is that we are 
servants of God who are serving lowly and efficient. That's our original position that we are unattached to now. We have somehow lost that position. And how have we lost that position? Probably no doctor said we never know. We can search for, for literally millions of, of years or, or through our descendants for millions of years and never know how. The, the uh, point of action is to regain our natural position. Prabhupada used the example once of someone who is, is uh, struck by a weapon like an arrow and, and one doesn't doesn't agonize over the, the question of where this arrow came from, but takes, but somehow or other has to come out so I can uh, live and then not lead to death. So similarly, the condition of the souls that live in this world is to get back to our original position, not to fret over how we wound up here in this material world, a place where we don't really want to be, but how do we get back to the spiritual world? The path is made very easy by Krishna, by Rupa Goswami, by Prabhupada and others. It's not a difficult thing that requires a great deal of penance and austerity. Sometimes it's thought that one has to engage in great penance and austerity to live in ice up to the neck, ice water up to the neck, or to be surrounded by fire in the hot weather, or to stick oneself with as many pins as possible and to tolerate the pain. That's a form of austerity. There was a, a film that somebody gave me that I saw about. It was a documentary about a man who rolled over and over, like a barrel roll, from, from somewhere in South India up to someplace in the Himalayas. And there were, there were trucks and buses and always a little coterie, a, a, a group of people following him around. And this was all photographed and he had bandages on his elbows and knees so he wouldn't get scarred. He was, when he got to Jaipur, he was rolling right through the streets of the city, and there were trucks and cars and people going by, almost hardly noticing it, because that's just the way it is in that part of the world. Anyway, he, he rolled all the way up to the Himalayas, and he rolled up a stairway, a very long stairway, it must have had at least a hundred stairs in it. And what was the reward? Why was he doing it? Because he wanted to ride with a garland of miracles around his neck, with his guru in a procession pulled by horses through the city of Jaipur. That was the goal. He wasn't getting a million dollars. He wasn't getting a beautiful wife. He was going to ride in a procession and and be uh, and have this accolade of riding with his guru through the city of Jaipur. And along the way, many people wanted to, him to cure their diseases. Some, some of them brought their children to him and asked that he cure them of childhood diseases. So he was, before he reached his destination, was thought to be a holy man. He engaged in many, many difficult austerities. Sometimes he was rolling through the rain on, on, the, on the tarmac and his whole body would be covered with little pebbles and, and dirt and grime and oil and water. But he succeeded and it may have taken him two years, I don't know how long it took. But what, what did he achieve? He achieved the, the riding along in a chariot. There are many types of austerities for different reasons. If, if you're the head of a large corporation, sometimes people have to get up at four in the morning and, and start writing memos to their staff or to themselves, providing them what to do. That's austerity. If a person wants to to, uh, to be like David Beckham and be a, a good football player, they have to practice. 
time in and time out, day in and day out, it's not easy. It requires, it's said no pain, no gain. One wants to be successful in martial arts, it requires a lot of training. Training uh, to be a musician, to be anything, to be a speaker, it requires training, lots of practice over and over and over again. But what, what does it achieve? What does it finally achieve, those kinds of austerities? Well, they achieve something. But those kinds of austerities tend to make people attached to the result of their austerity. Sometimes they become very uh, uh, hard-hearted or, or very callous to, to keep them cold. It builds strength. It gives them something. There's something very strong. Some people like to sleep on marble or sleep on stone, and it makes them very strong. And maybe they'll live a long life. Some people learn how to control their breath so that they can go into a kind of samadhi where they don't breathe for many, many hours or days at a time. And they sometimes live for hundreds of years as a result of their austerities. But the austerity that, that we were taught was the austerity of doing everything for God, doing everything for Krishna. It sounds like not a very great austerity. Of course, there are the essential austerities or ordinaries of not eating meat, not having intoxication, not having illicit sex, not gambling. But those are very minimal compared to the ecstasy of Krishna consciousness. It sounds very difficult. Prabhupada was telling about one Englishman who wanted to be a Brahman. It was his desire, it was his dream. He wanted to be a Brahman. When, when he asked one of the, the gurus to do, what does it take? What do I have to do to be a Brahman? He was told, well, you have to give up a list of six gambling, uh, meat eating, and intoxication. He said, oh, that's impossible. I can't do that. <laughs> Meaning that the very basis of his life was all those things. He couldn't, couldn't think of giving up, drinking a little bit, or, or eating a little bit of meat, or whatever. It, it was just absolutely impossible. But even such austerities, became very easy for thousands of people because they had a taste for Krishna consciousness. They had, they had an inkling. They were, they were taking the first steps to Krishna consciousness. And therefore, those austerities were very, very minimal. And what they were really doing, what they were really spending most of their time doing, was they were engaging themselves in devotional service. Whether it was producing music, uh, producing books, cooking in the kitchen, cleaning pots, fixing automobiles, painting buildings, constructing things. It didn't matter. Because they were because there was so much happiness in doing those things and doing it for Krishna that the austerities of giving up illicit sex, gambling, intoxication, and mediating were insignificant. Literally insignificant. In one lecture in what is now Mumbai, Prabhupada was asked, don't they sometimes at least go to movies? And Prabhupada, because there was a movie theater right near the temple, Shandana Cinema, still there. And Prabhupada's answer was, they hate them. Can you imagine someone hating something as seemingly innocuous as a movie? But Prabhupada's answer was, they hate. They hate. They didn't even think of it. They wouldn't even consider going to see. Uh, Mel Gibson or whoever's a famous movie actor or actress. It's not interesting because they're getting so much pleasure. So what I was saying before, what the verse was saying, is that they're just like eating. Everybody knows it's something we do every day. We put things in our mouth. And it feels good, especially when we're very hungry. So chanting is meant to be that way, according to the verse.
One of the Yogendas is saying to Maharaj Nini, Devotion, direct experience of the Supreme Lord and attachment to other things. These three occur simultaneously for one who has taken shelter of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In the same way that pleasure, nourishment, and relief from hunger come simultaneously and increasingly with each bite for a person engaged in eating. And how many times do we have this experience? We're eating ourselves, we're not just anything else. We see others eating, they're in a restaurant. There could be a Almost anything happening, except maybe a box. They're not interested. They're just not going to turn their heads. They're, they're, they're very concentrated on what they're doing. So this is what Krishna consciousness is meant to be. It's meant to give pleasure to one who chants. And the more we look at it as a pleasure giving and a pleasure taking thing, the more devotion we will experience. The more, the more nourishment, the more spiritually strong will be, and the less will be uh, attracted by material of the Lord. Very, very nice. So, if anyone would like to uh, say anything about realizations or query anything, now's the time. Yeah, Jai Sheila. In the same part, the elephant would like to sometimes, some scientists, etc. The There's 
division or cell replication or offspring, then there's dwindling and then there's death. This is the nature of everything that comes into the world. It, it has a temporary existence. Like I said, it's born. But everybody is born from somebody else. So that's kind of immortality. And then everybody dies. But the soul lives on. So that's what we call immortality of the soul. That's what people sometimes call reincarnation and transmigration. And even people who, who eat pigs in certain parts of the world, they believe in that there's going to be another existence after this life. There are people who, who believe it. It's, a, it's, it's very common. In India it's very common in Brazil. I've read that 80% of the people of Brazil, which is one of the biggest countries in the world, believe in some in reincarnation. Not exactly like the Vedic idea, but in reincarnation. So there have been books written about immortality for human beings being able to be achieved within the next hundred years. And they cite instances of replacements of bodily parts, like uh, not only um, hands and legs, but, but organs, internal organs, like kidneys and livers and hearts. And they say that the brain will also be, will be replaced and that people will be able to live forever. But if you actually analyze this, you can see that even if a brain was replaced, it might be able to operate, make hands move and eyes move and so on. But what about memory? How, how could that, what machine could bring complete memory and recall that? Well, you could say that's possible because computers do it, you have access to this and that and the other thing. So there are geneticists who have written books saying that immortality of some stripe will be achieved by the end of this decade, by the end of this century. That's what they think. They really believe it. But my conception is, so what? what if, I mean, and first of all, you have to be able to afford it, which limits it to a very small percentage of the population anyway. Who's going to be able to afford an artificial eye or an artificial ear or to speak of an artificial brain? We might be talking about 1% of the people that can pay that kind of money. Anyway, that's just some reflection on what some people think is going to happen. That's the natural, what they call evolution of, of human beings. They're going to become immortal. Right, right in the next hundred years. I personally don't believe it. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, This is a very good point. There's a, a, an amulet that people wear as a bracelet or a, a brooch or a, a pendant that says, What did Jesus do? It's a, it's a very popular form of jewelry in the United States. It's, it's engraved with the words, What would Jesus do? And there's kind of an upsurge in evangelism in, in uh, the, the northeastern part of the United States, anyway, from what I've read. That's even taking place at places like Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard, which, which, and, and Boston University, many of which are considered bastions of, of secular thought and, and scientific investigation. So there's, I, mean, I don't know if it's being done by, by evangelists, if they're the ones who are promoting it, or if it's coming out naturally, but it, it seems to be a bit of both. And it's a very nice meditation to think, what would Jesus do? Because if, if we think, what would Christian do? What would Prabhupada do? What would Jesus do? What would Muhammad do? 
it's it's a way, it's a kind of meditation. It helps us to become more advanced along the path of bhakti yoga. What would a great saint do in, in these in this condition? How how would he react? And there are many, many saints that are working silently around the world. How would they respond? What would they do in this situation? And the, the more we can think in that way, of course, the more spiritual we'll be. You know, what, what, if Krishna is always there and always watching us, which we know he is, then what, 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 what would we do? I mean, is, can we hide anything from anybody? It is said in the Bhagavad Gita that the sun and the moon are the eyes of Krishna. Symbolic in this means that we can't hide from Krishna. So while we may be thinking we're in a dark room or hidden away and God can't see us, uh, that reminder is there. What would Jesus do? What would, what would Prabhupada do? Very, it's a very good meditation. And so Prabhupada has recommended that for those who, who are like to read or can read, to do it because it helps us meditate on, on what would a great soul do. Because we, we have we have every juncture of our lives to make decisions. And it's not necessarily that there something is right and something is wrong. Sometimes it's a, very, it's a very complicated thing we have to decide. And and one of the ways that we can do it is to is to meditate. What would Jesus do? What would probably what would what, what is my what was the verse I read today? What were the verses I read today meaning to me? What, how how would the author of this book act in this situation? <clears throat> it said I've heard Prabhupada say this, that, that Sanatana Goswami would counsel people, not, not as a counselor, but even sometimes people would come to him, like husbands and wives, and they'd have some problem. And they would, they would lay it out before him. And he wasn't a trained counselor, but he was a, a great, great soul who has an identity in the spiritual world. And they would lay out their problems before him, and they would abide by whatever he said. I mean, he would consider it. And in days of yore, that was 500 years ago, people like Sanatana and Rupa and Jiva Goswami were, were not just considered uh, people who uh, stand in the pulpit and give sermons, but they were people who had solutions to everyday problems, everyday life. And of course, that's one of the reasons that Prabhupada has created a society. It wasn't just a group of gurus or just a group of administrators or just a group of temples, but he created a, a International Society of Christian Consciousness, an ISKCON institution, he called it sometimes, which was meant to develop all kinds of ways to solve all kinds of problems that we're going to encounter on the path of the Christian consciousness. And, and that's happening. There are many, many different aspects of ISKCON that are growing and reaching out in many different directions to solve the kinds of problems that we're going to encounter on this path, which are many. In, in very many, because we live in the material world, and the material world is a very complicated and complex world. But spiritually, every problem can be dealt with. In, in uh, a search on Prabhupada's writings, I, I searched once, I found that he said over 30 times that Christian consciousness would be the solution to all problems of the world. And those are recorded instances. There were many that were not recorded. Hare Krishna. 
The difference between Jesus and Arjuna, or Krishna, Jesus, was that, that uh, in, in the Bhagavad Gita, they're in a very, what you might call, compromising situation. Arjuna is a Shatriya. Krishna is active, although he's raised in a, in a uh, Shatriya family, or he was born in a kingly family, he was raised as a Vaishya. Those, those things uh, begin to dissipate in Discourse of Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is the purport is that Arjuna wanted to renounce to give up everything because he was very saintly. And Krishna said, No, if I order you to do it, then it's okay, even though it's a very unpleasant thing. Whereas with Jesus, he was also a very saintly person, but avatar. Uh, he he actually gave up his life knowing that there would be an eternal existence after this. So he showed the way, in a sense, of transmigration. That, that being tortured to death, being, being, uh, what do they call it when they're pinned up to a cross? Crucified. It sounds like the most horrible thing that could ever happen. But to do it in the service of Krishna, there's, there's, there's some benefit. So that was what his teaching was. That that even though it was a, a very hideous death, it was also a very glorious thing. And it was so glorious that a whole religious tradition is built upon it. Somewhat. Somewhat like that, like Bali Maharaj. Very similar. What did she say? The time frame? That's another great grand difference. The Bhagavad Gita was spoken 5,000 years ago, and the, the, uh, what happened 2,000 years ago was very different. Um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that Prabhupada said about Jesus Christ is that he was a great moralist, and the people at that time, because Kali Yuga had advanced 3,000 years further along, that, uh, that People couldn't understand a lot of the more intricate things about philosophy that are in the Bhagavad Gita. The, the general public that is, couldn't understand. So when sometimes Prabhupada was asked to compare Christianity or its teachings with the Bhagavad Gita, he would say that the Christianity is true, just like a, a, a pocket dictionary is correct and true, but a large unabridged dictionary, which is also correct and true, it just has more information in it. So that was one way that he compared. Uh, the teachings of the Bible and the teachings of Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is more for intellectuals who really want to understand philosophy. But within Bhagavad Gita, there's also the principle of Bhakti Yoga, which was described in the second chapter about just act for Krishna, which is really the same teaching in a sense that Jesus Christ was teaching. But you're correct, there were different times and and the, the people's intelligence varied according to the time and place. According to, in other yugas, in, in Saja Yuga, Trade Yuga, Dwarf Yuga, people's intelligence was based more on what they were, what they heard, they had better memories. But people in the Kali Yuga are more visually oriented. They, they, uh, they remember what they see. In fact, one of the 
techniques that's taught for people to memorize is to imagine pictures of different things blending into one another. This is a way you can memorize 25 different unre seemingly unrelated objects by visualizing them. But in, in other ages, people could just remember things. Prabhupada told the story once that there was a Brahmin in Vrindavan who was summoned to a British court. This is when the, the uh, Raj was ruling India. The British people were ruling India before independence around about 1910, something like that. So they had a court system. And, and what happened was two English people got in an altercation and, and ended up with one killed the other, murdered the other one. But there were no witnesses, so this was brought to court. And nobody had seen what was, no, saw the thing happen or had heard what they had said, except for one man, it was a Brahman. And he was washing his clothes nearby in the, in the Jamuna River. And he heard the whole conversation. He didn't understand a word of English, but he had a very, very keen memory. He was a Brahman. He was sort of like, you might say, a leftover from a previous Yuga. So he was summoned to that court, and he repeated verbatim what these two men said. On the basis of his testimony, one of the men was convicted of murder. Prabhupada tells that story in the lecture. But since in Kali Yuga everything is based on visuality, we even Prabhupada put pictures in his books. So many pictures in Bhagavad Gita. And what do people like to do for entertainment? They'll turn on the, turn on the one-eyed guru, leave it on for six or seven hours. <laughs> Not very good. But Yudha Vairagya is when we put pictures of Krishna in the books, when we paint them on the ceilings of temples. That's Yudha Anything else? What is what? How is it that? Yeah. Okay, so the question was if the Bhagavad Gita is more for these teachings are more for intellectuals. How can a simple person uh, advance in, in Christian consciousness? This is a very, uh, very interesting point. Um, I just want to relate one story to, to help understand one, one answer to this question. And uh, this is a, a, a well-known incident that appears to have taken place in South India. That one man uh, was illiterate. This is another person who was a Brahmin in South India, and he was holding a Bhagavad Gita like this. And people around him started joking, making fun of him. Why are you just staring at this book for hours and hours on end? And he said, well, I can't read. But my, my spiritual master told me I have to read one chapter every day of Bhagavad Gita. So I'm just staring at the book. So they were making fun of him. <clears throat> and as the story goes, one day, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to him and, and asked him, My dear Brahma, why are you uh, staring at the pages and not turning the pages of the book, hours a day? And 
According to the story, he knew that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wasn't going to make fun of him, wasn't going to make jokes. But he was sincerely asking him, what are you doing? And he said the same thing. He said, I can't read a word about my scripture master. He said, I should read it about today, about my Gita. And then Lord Chaitanya said, but I see that there are also tears streaming down your cheeks. You appear to be crying. Why is that? And he, he said, well, my spiritual master told me that this was a dialogue that was spoken between Krishna and Arjuna. And when I understand, when I see that, that Arjuna sat on the chariot and became the suit of the driver of Arjuna, then I feel very, very, uh, very strange. And some emotion wells up within me and tears come from my eyes. So, according to the story, Lord Chaitanya, hearing this, embraced him and said, you are the real reader of Bhagavad Gita. He couldn't read, but he was trying to be devotional. So the idea is that even if one is illiterate, if one tries to be devotional, chanting Hare Krishna, obeys the orders of the Guru, and associates with the devotees, lives in the sacred place, worships the deity, makes some attempt at memorizing or whatever, then that person will advance in Krishna consciousness. So, and Prabhupada did say that, if you don't want to read, you don't have to. You just chant regularly, associate with the bodies, uh, have some kind of, of a regular association with enhancing personalities, live in a holy place, and, and try to spread Christian consciousness somehow, even if you can't read. Anyway, that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs>